CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Hello again and welcome to the Coin World Podcast. We're so glad that you are here with us as we have another great episode in store for you here today. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark, and uh, we are excited to have a returning guest. We are speaking with Dr. Ellen Feingold of the Smithsonian once again. Dovetails nicely with a story that Larry uh, and I wrote in a recent issue of Coin World. We're uh, we're just going to have a fun show this week like we always do. Ain't that right, Larry? Oh, absolutely. And uh, hopefully some of you just uh, back from the a recent Whitman Expo that was held down in Baltimore and had a chance to stop by and visit our friends at Coin World Plus. We appreciate Coin World Plus coming on board for this one as uh, we uh, have that great new innovation that's there. And uh, maybe you haven't had the chance to see it yet, but uh, if you're going to be in the show, Central States show coming up is at the end of this month. Well, they're going to be there as well. So check them out in advance. Bring your slabbed coins there and you can get the tag put on it right there. Check it all that information out at coinworldplus.com. That's great as we uh, do appreciate that. And again, I know they've got a lot of innovative things that are going to be happening for 2022. And we'll be telling you more about that coming up a little bit later on right now. But you know, our, our coin collections that we have, and we have a lot of care and a lot of uh, thought going into what we want to collect and how we want to collect it. And, uh, you know, we have these, uh, the dealers who help us out with all this stuff. And it seems like here lately, I mean, if you uh, have been watching on social media, it seems like here lately, there've been a, uh, uh, an increase in nefarious characters that have been out there in the world as we start to see more and more people coming back to coin shows. And it seems like there've been more than a few incidents here recently where somebody's tried to and succeeded in stealing product. There's no other way to put it. It's stealing. And uh, I don't know. Have you noticed that, Jeff? Yeah, we seem to be um, seeing quite a number of dealers alerting folks to this. And, you know, it's a constant threat. It's, uh, it's one of the things that comes with the business, uh, comes with the territory, as they say. Uh, but it's an unfortunate reality. And, and just because something's uh, reality doesn't mean it sits well. I mean, we work hard for our money so hard for it honey that uh <laughs> um have to drop a few lyrics every episode every. and uh, and um it's just uh, it's frustrating angering annoying whatever adjective you want to use to describe it but it it speaks to the ever present reality uh for folks and um it's just a reminder to be cautious and um you paid better attention to this than I have, I think. But well, I, I think that you know the efforts of like the NCIC and people like that that are definitely this is not a new problem. Not saying that this is something that just cropped up, but it's just the idea that communication and awareness are among the uh, the peaks right now because the communication, the fact that we have these social media groups, and the fact that you can find out about something that happened right away so you can be on guard about this because there have been cases where a, a theft occurred and then somebody said, hey, I saw that guy at a show in the same area and uh, you know that, that type of thing. So people, the more information that's available out there, and then that allows the authorities that get involved because the authorities take this seriously and uh, they go out after that. There have been suspects that have been arrested and uh, all this is pending, and we don't want to get into anything in the specifics on that because we're not trying the case here on this podcast. But just the idea that those of us who have a passion for this particular hobby or this particular avocation, whatever the case may be, you want to do what you can to help out. I, I think about this as we start to see more and more coin shows going on, and you get dealer tables that get quite the crowd. 
And sometimes these somewhat smaller dealers, let's say, they don't have the personnel to handle, you know, more than a couple of people at their table and they don't want to look rude and run people off. And, and there's all kinds of factors that enter into this. Some of those are factors that the criminal element takes into consideration because a lot of times you'll see these things are done with as teams, not necessarily you got one that sets it up and then one that does the job. They have accomplices on this thing. So, and it's just with the idea that we're going to start seeing more and more shows that we really all have a responsibility here to make sure that none of this stuff happens because it affects us. You know, when a dealer loses stock, it could have been something we were after, but that those prices have to go up, that type of thing. So we, we all get victimized by this. This is not a victimless crime. We all get victimized by this. And another thing to consider is the fact that it doesn't have to be an ANA show. It doesn't have to be a Central States. It doesn't have to be a Whitman Expo for something like this to happen. It can be a very small show. And, you know, those, those are the, the situations you could go to a, uh, a very small show and still find somebody because the criminal element doesn't care. They don't discriminate against the size of the show. They're after what the uh, commodities are right there. I mean, it sounds like I'm getting up on a soapbox, but here's the <laughs> idea. You know, just the idea that it, it infuriates that somebody would besmirch the hobby like this. And yeah, they're out there because these things have value. That's the value with the dollar sign in front of it. And it's happening more and more often, but maybe it's just because we're seeing it reported more and more often. And that's a good thing. And that's just something I wanted to bring up into it. We're always going to be looking. I'm going to look to be talking to experts more and more as we go to the shows like Central States. It's just the idea that we all have to try to put a stop to this. I mean, we've managed for the most part to stop littering, thanks to Lady Bird Johnson. But, you know, let's put a stop to the numismatic thefts that we're seeing. Rant over. Yeah, you're. I think you're referring to some specific cases we've heard of out of Florida and Iowa and, and elsewhere where um, it's just unfortunate, but it, you know, it's, it's something that's happening all over. Just a, a reminder to be vigilant and, and to um, be cautious because they are unfortunately out there and um, you know, they're everywhere. It's not, uh, it's not isolated to any particular state. So yeah. And the thing of it is, those are the cases that you cited are just some of the ones that got attention. Just imagine the ones that aren't getting attention. They're the ones, the, uh, the dealers who felt, oh man, I got victimized and it, you know, I don't want to look bad. I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm doing. And so it goes unreported. So there's plenty of folks who, um, who just keep quiet because of the, you know, like you say, the stigma surrounding it. And, um, you know, or, or frankly, some of them may not know. I mean, you know, you know, we all seen some dealers who have just stock everywhere and, you know, it's like, how do you know what you have? And, you know, if you don't know what you have, you don't know what you may have had stolen. So, um, you know, who knows? It's, um, it's unfortunate. It, it definitely, makes it more challenging for those of us who are going to go out there and do it the right way. Uh, but um, it's part of the hobby, especially when, you know, like that show I went to in Springfield a couple of weeks ago, Springfield, Illinois, one of my friends in, in the St. Louis area that I went with, he said, you know, yeah, there's a lot of folks who come down from Chicago and there's, you know, there's Chicago money in the room. And that's why there were dealers with, you know, several dealers with lots of gold and, and, and silver. And, you know, you just think about the volume that some of these folks are carrying the value. We all know a dealer who's uh, had, I mean, I know somebody who had his stock uh, robbed and, you know, there was uh, episodes many episodes over the, the time with coin world that um, it, it's just sad. And so, yeah. And I don't want to infer that it's only a show thing because it happens at the brick and mortars as well. It happens, oh, it happens oh, anywhere. Yeah. So it's just not a show thing. It's a, it's all about anywhere. It could happen. It could it probably happens more often at the brick and mortars than it does at the shows. I don't know. I, yeah. I mean, I simply don't know, but I mean, there's certain element of protection that needs to be there. A lot of these, uh, a lot of the rules are common sense rules. I get that. I mean, and, and there's, there's certain risk, there's risk involved in anything. 
but just the idea that here lately by scrolling through the Facebook and seeing some of these things and uh, the efforts that are being done by making sure they have videos of uh, some of these transactions, great job on that. But, uh, you know, it's just the idea. It seems like, and again, it could be because it's become more popular to publicize it and get the communication out there and, and strengthen the unity in, in trying to prevent it. But just the idea, I think that's a topic that we've, uh, we're dealing with right now in 2022. And uh, we try to be informative on this podcast. And I just think that's something that needed to come up. I mean, it's not often that you're going to get me railing like this, but I, I, I said rant <laughs> over, but I, rant number two is now over. Okay. All right. So, uh, you know, the good news is for all the challenges in that regard, the vast majority of, of folks are honest and fine. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's all good. There's a lot of positive things to be said uh, about the hobby and about what's going on. I mean, you know, we look at this new exhibit that the Smithsonian is coming out with uh, opening up April 8th. That is the subject of our interview with Dr. Feingold in just a few minutes. Don't want to harp on the negative, dwell on that. You know, there's lots of positive things to think about. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the most positive that we can talk about lately. There's these stories that go back in time, you know, for centuries, really, in, in some respects. I want to say, you know, every, every week we do a um, This Week in Numismatic History, and I get to get to look at that and try to zero in on something. I don't know if these were necessarily positive. I, I don't think collectors these days would say it, but it, it led to the creation of a famous rarity uh, because it was on April 5th, 1933, that Franklin Roosevelt issued the order requiring the public to turn in gold certificates, bullion, and coins. Uh, and of course, that affected the 1933 gold double eagle. You know, we may have talked about this particular date and this event in history before, but, you know, hey, that was a year ago, so cut me some slack. And, um, you know, the, the other reality is it was a pretty big deal. So, you know, it bears repeating. Also on that day, April 5th, from numismatic history, but in 2000 was when Sacagawea dollar designer Glenna Goodacre received her commission. She was paid $5,000 for her design. Well, that was the day she received a specially produced Sacagawea dollars on burnished planchets. That turned into, I don't want to say a fiasco because, you know, I mean, it's, it's again, negative connotation, but it led to the creation of some special collectibles and she was able to market them and turn $5,000 into much, much more. And uh, so, you know, for the collector of the modern dollar series, you know, Sacagawea dollar, you have the burnished plants, you have the Cheerio dollar. There's a couple different special examples. There's the dollar mule with the quarter design that, you know, one, one collector, I think out in Nevada or somewhere has snapped up like 24 of 25 or some crazy number like that. There's some neat collectability to it, but that happened uh, this week in numismatic history. So we may have talked about it before, but it bears repeating because it's, um, they're kind of fun, you know. I, I don't remember what I talked about last year. I don't want to be held responsible for that. Yeah, I don't remember what I talked about yesterday, <laughs> practically. <laughs> so, you know. And those, those are critical events that help shape what this hobby is all about. So it's it's worth reminding folks about yes. that. I mean, it, it, didn't, uh, it did enhance what we needed to be thinking about here. And certainly those two events that you cited right there, the fact that they happened on April 5th is pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's this week in numismatic history. That's, um, you know, that's all the fun that uh, I could uh, dredge up as it were. But I tell you what, you know, I love looking back at the historical events and the, and the old, the classic coin rolled issues. I saw something in the April 7th, 2008 issue uh, 
that was it was a reminder to me and something maybe we haven't talked about enough on the podcast. Um, we chose 2008 because that was the zenith of the Zimbabwe inflation money, which of course is a central piece or a significant uh, item that's part of the new exhibit at the Smithsonian. But Al Doyle, who was a freelance writer who wrote for us then, a uh, nice guy, he's still out there somewhere. He had a story that was piggybacking on Paul Joke's story a couple weeks earlier about how first spouse gold $10 coins were being melted because of the spike in precious metal value. And uh, which, you know, at the time was a record high and uh, silver was at like $20 an ounce at the time, which you know, is not a record, but it, it was on its upward trajectory and it would get to, you know, $48 plus briefly, uh, I believe in 2008 uh, at, at its peak. You know, Al made the point that the melting pots are beckoning, you know, high mintage modern coins are probably good candidates for um, refining and turning into something else. Um, it's not just the first spouse coins. It's, you know, anything like the uh, Washington bis- uh, half dollar, you know, his birth bicentennial, the Constitution silver dollar, the Statue of Liberty silver dollar. I mean, you can't go to a show without seeing some of these U.S. commems in just an absolute abundance and in many respects they're a, they're a great vehicle to hold silver cheaply with a neat design and a somewhat limited mintage you know some of these had you know like the statue of liberty there was 7.1 million and change of the silver dollars made i've said it before and i wrote it before that you add the mintages up the of the statue of liberty coinage uh, for that 1986 series, and there was enough coins made for that program to give everyone that came through Ellis Island one of the coins and have some left. And I love the coins. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I a dealer had a bunch of the uh, half dollars for like a dollar fifty, and I bought them up. I'm tempted to try to spend them because you know that would just be kind of cool and leave them as tips or something i don't know but you know cuz I, I i love the statue of liberty i've i've seen it it's you know but the silver coins my gosh there's you know as al says a few hundred thousand of these could be melted without anyone missing them and so it it's just a reminder that mintage numbers aren't everything when it comes to uh sussing out uh, a value and a, you know, availability in the marketplace. Certainly it matters more when you're talking about a classic issue, circulation issue, something that would have uh, been dropped, lost, melted, maybe, you know, how much stuff was lost and melted or, you know, how much stuff was lost to the hobby because it was melted uh, during the Hunt Brothers run up and the, you know, 2008, 2009 silver wave as well. So mintage figures are a, a snapshot in time. Basically, you know, this is what it was in that year, but you know, how many are, are left today is harder to suss out. It's funny, a friend of mine, one of the guys that went to the coin show with, and he listened to the podcast, he told me about metal detecting and some of the things he's found. And there's stuff out there waiting to be d- discovered. And who knows, maybe somebody will find a, um, a silver George Washington half dollar a hundred years from now. And, uh, you know, <laughs> in, in a metal detecting setting, you know, they'll, they'll be out metal detecting, but, but uh, there's lots of stuff out there waiting to be discovered whether it's through metal detector or at a show. Um, I guess I will end my filibuster. <laughs> you, you ranted, I filibustered. There you go. That's it. Yeah, but yours wasn't near as long as mine, that's for sure. But uh, letters. I mean, it's interesting. We're talking, uh, you talked earlier about Glenna Goodacre and uh, the Sacagawea, but uh, this one, the letter that we're talking about here deals with dollar coins and versus dollar notes. And it says, let's join the 21st century. 
says, thank you for publishing Nick Schreier's Silly Bombast in the March 17th issue. That's March 17, 2008. I am finally stimulated to speak my mind on the issue of dollar coins versus dollar notes. The United States happens to be the only major industrialized nation that has no widely circulated coin that will buy a cup of coffee and a widely circulated banknote that won't. 2008. I'm not pleased that our weak-kneed elected representatives continue to waste my money printing a medium with an average life of 22 months when a durable, affordable alternative is available. I don't like to push several quarter dollars into a parking meter or fuss with a bulky bill receptacle on pop machines. That should tell you geographically where we're talking here. Then you also have the note that I wouldn't consider carrying 40 coins of any kind in my pocket any more than I would consider stuffing $41 bills in my wallet. That was a reference to the previous letter that said the dollar coin doesn't make sense because you don't want to put 40 of them in your wallet. Well, they're saying that you don't put 40 single dollar bills in there. You put a couple of 20s in there. There is some truth in the opinions of Mr. Shire, however. As long as, A, the coin supply is contaminated with the unfortunate Anthony Dollars, and, B, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing continues to produce dollar notes, people will be slow to change their habits and will defend them with silly hyperbole about pockets full of those oh-so-heavy coins. For those who feel as I do, I urge you to take action where you can. Use the dollar coins and ask for them in change. Write to your senators and representatives to express your dismay at the wasteful practice of producing competing monetary tokens. Let's join Canada, Great Britain, the European Union, and the 21st century and start using a coin that'll buy a coffee, a candy bar, and more time on a parking meter. That letter comes from Charles Anderson of Seattle. Of course, we all know how that ends up. One other note here, a grim warning, it says. Beth Deicher's March 17th editorial on a motto for the District of Columbia coin could well have been written by the Democratic National Committee. The U.S. Mint didn't muzzle the slogan for this coin. The law did. Is it reasonable that because a slogan is on a license plate, it would give the slogan some standing? It's well known under the guise of voting rights that there's a drive to make District of Columbia a city-state, a Democratic city-state. It's well known that voting rights could be obtained by District of Columbia residents within a year by seating the district, minus the federal triangle, to Maryland, where they would have a sympathetic government for district citizens. Why isn't this considered? Here's a grim warning. With the creation of a city-state, will there be others? There you have it. So there was some pretty emphatic note there from James E. Baird of nearby Dulles, Virginia. Those are just a couple of the uh, the ones. There were a few other letters there that uh, were pretty emotional and uh, got pretty excited and just uh, had to leave it alone for, <laughs> for now. But, uh, you know, we're getting into these rants and filibusters, so we'll just kind of let it ride for this point. Do you yield your time, Senator? <laughs> I, I yield my time, yes. I just thought that this was rather appropriate, considering that later on in the program we'll obviously be talking about an attraction that is going to be opening up in mere days in the in, uh, District of Columbia. Yes, and as we record this, I am planning my trip. Planning my trip. So, can't wait. Yeah. Planning your trip around the schedule of the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah. Hey, whatever, whatever <laughs> works. Um, add another uh, stadium to my to my list. But uh, actually, I, you know, I yielded my time. But I think you're the one who actually has to ask me a question. Yes. Um, yes. And I so, kind of I kind of gave you a little bit of a uh, the shove right there by uh, mentioning because our question, our trivia question in the past episode dealt with congressional gold medals. Again, that Washington connection right there, but dealt with congressional gold medals. And I kind of gave you a couple of options on this one because there have been an extensive group of congressional gold medals. That was recently a subject of William T. Gibbs editorial is how we got started on that one. But looking at all the different congressional gold medals there were, we talked about last episode, some of the unknown heroes. And of course, the congressional gold medal started out as a military honor, but it later encompassed more of what American society was all about. So I ask you the question here, you could go either way with this one. Who was the first athlete 
to get a congressional gold medal, or if you so choose, who was the youngest recipient of a congressional gold medal? I leave to you the option of answering one, both, or neither. Well, I'm not going to punt this, so I'll I'll try at least one. But I'm gonna I'm gonna try both, and I I have a feeling uh, I'll be lucky to get one of the two right. But um, so you say, who is the youngest? recipient of a congressional gold medal. And my mind immediately goes to Newark, Ohio born Johnny Clem, who was, you know, Johnny Shiloh in popular culture, this drummer boy during the civil war. But then I go, no, wait a minute. He was a medal of honor recipient. I think he would live to serve in the military for many years after the civil war and, and would die in the 1930s, I think. So, I mean, to me, that makes the most sense. I can't think of anyone else that, you know, especially because you said there was, this was a lot of, um, you know, in, there was a lot of military influence with the recipients. So I'm thinking, okay, who, who would have served in a military context that could have been a recipient? And that's all I got. I mean, you know, it's, it's not like, I mean, if you said that um, who was the youngest pitcher in Major League Baseball, I go, oh, Joe Nuxall, because yeah. of, you know, military-wise, I can't think of any young person that would have uh, received this. Now, you know, maybe that's, I'm, I'm reading too much into what you, you suggested, but that's my guess for that, but I'm not really sure if that's right or wrong. Okay, I'll go ahead and tell you that the military was actually just a diversion because that's a fact that they uh, were early on just devoted to the military. But in this case, the youngest recipient uh, received it as an acclaimed lifesaver. He was the second to be honored as a good Samaritan. It happened back in the 1940s. And the youngster's name, Roland Boucher, who was 11 years old when he was recognized for saving the lives of four children who'd broken through the ice on Lake Champlain near the uh, Juniper Island area. So he was awarded back in the 1940s for his uh, bravery and his courage and his uh, good Samaritanship that helped him uh, get that honor. So uh, deserving honor, no question about that. Would you oh, sure. That? Everybody knows of Roland or Raymond Boucher. Or Roland. <laughs> yes, Roland. Roland. Yeah, that, that name just rolls right off the tongue from historical figures. Uh, that's interesting though, because, you know, I know the U S had life-saving medals and there's a, an interesting area of medals is, uh, known as the Carnegie hero fund medal. So I, maybe those no longer existed or were, why would that not be in play? But this person got a, uh, congressional gold medal anyway. Okay. So, yeah. so Oh, for one, zero for one. Um, you said, who was the first sport sporting individual mm -hmm. athlete? Yep to uh, to receive a congressional gold medal. And so my mind goes back to Jesse Owens or uh, Joe Lewis, the boxer, because I know I've seen medals for them. Jackie Robinson would be another good name. I know golfer uh, Arnold. Palmer, I think, is on one, but that's much more recent. You know, Robinson was 47. Lewis was during the Depression, maybe. I'm going to say Joe Lewis. Well, Joe Lewis was actually the third athletic recipient of a congressional gold medal. The second athletic recipient was actually the 1980 U.S. Olympic Summer Olympic team. Ah. So it was a team. He also, the, the individuals you mentioned, Jesse Owens, Joe Lewis, um, obviously Jackie Robinson. It just blows my mind that if I were, were put in that same position you were in, I would have thought Jackie Robinson would have been first. And uh, Jackie Robinson, by the way, as well, we are looking at the early part of April. Jackie Robinson, the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's appearance in the Major League is coming up from 1947, yep. April 17th. Jackie, April 15. April 15. That's right. April 15. I'm getting Easter in here too. So, yeah. um, you know, April 15, 1947, 75 years. And uh, so many things happened in April. The Titanic, the Lincoln assassination, just so many things happened in April. This particular medal dealt with an, an event that happened, unfortunately, on 
New Year's Eve back in 1972. The first Ooh, athlete. Roberto oh, Clemente. That's it right there. Honored for his athletics and his humanitarian efforts. Uh, the late Roberto Clemente of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I, I told you that uh, I gave you a clue off off mic that I did happen to see him play in his final game when he played against the Cincinnati Reds in the playoffs that year. So, but he was always ah, been my okay. hero. And uh, unfortunately, I was wearing his uh, T-shirt the day I met Lawrence McCutcheon. But, uh, you know, it's just the idea. That's Andrew McCutcheon's father. And I said the greatest player for the Pittsburgh uh, Pirates was Roberto Clemente. Of course, you couldn't argue that. But nonetheless, well-deserved. But again, Jackie Robinson, as the, that would have been a thought that came to mind there. You know, I was amazed by all the different uh, entertainers who were honored. Uh, Harry Chapin, uh, the first entertainer, was Bob Hope. And it stands to reason, given all the uh, the work that he did with the uh, USO and all, all the different things. But you have to go many years past the year when the award was given to uh, Roberto Clemente posthumously was in 1973, and it was 30 years later that Jackie Robinson finally got his. So that just yeah yeah I knew Robinson's uh, Robinson's I knew was much more recent, but the events were 47. So you know it's it's yeah it's crazy to think I should have known Roberto Clemente. So well you know I'm gonna I'm gonna take a goose egg. Um, wear a wear a collar right you know what's the when you go hitless in a game but um it was worth a shot so now i guess i have to try to confuse and confound and uh, avenge my uh loss by by doing the same to you and so we're talking about the smithsonian and you may know that the smithsonian is named for an individual James Smithson. Smithson left money to the U.S., and in absence of an heir, it was to go to increase and diffuse some knowledge, you know, the increase and diffusion of knowledge. So what did he leave? How much did he leave? There are actual coins that he left. What were they? How many were there? That was the impetus for the Smithsonian and, you know, America's Attic, the national collection where, of course, the National Numismatic Collection is. So check that out. Think about it. I don't know if we get into that with uh, Dr. Feingold, but uh, you just listen carefully. You never know. It might pop up. And uh, next episode, we will uh, we will put you to the test and see if you can deliver the right answer. Okay, we'll find out shortly. But in the meantime, as that effort for education continues ongoing here in the 21st century, we're going to give you an insight into how one of the uh, exhibits is upcoming here. Uh, you can learn more about that. And uh, once again, Dr. Ellen Feingold on hand here to share us uh, something she gave us a sneak peek of back uh, at the end of 2021 and now has a little more details. So give it a listen here. This is Dr. Ellen Feingold, the curator of the National Numismatic Collection. The Coin World Podcast is delighted to have a really important guest for a really big interview here. This is time to talk to Dr. Ellen Feingold again, curator at the National Numismatic Collection at the Smithsonian Institution uh, and the American History Museum. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me again. It's always a pleasure to talk with you guys. Well, we love it, and you have been nothing but helpful as we uh, work to understand and highlight the new exhibit that is opening up, I believe, April 8th in the gallery. We're going to talk about that at length today. Uh, we also gave lots of coverage in the April issue of Coin World, the April monthly issue of Coin World. This is, pun intended, a really big exhibit, right? <laughs> exactly. It is a really big exhibit. It is, in fact, you know, as you said, called Really Big Money. And um, it will be our second numismatics exhibition at the Smithsonian, we could not be more excited and more proud that we will have two dedicated spaces, and this one in particular dedicated for kids. Now, the last time we talked, this was in the planning stage. It was hoped that we would be able to stay on target. It's look, everything's looking great. 
Can you give us a little insight into where it stands right now here in the uh, latter part of March? Is uh, everything on schedule? Yes, I'm so pleased to report that everything is on schedule. We have completed object installation. The room is looking gorgeous. We're just perfecting the lighting and testing some of the technology in the room, our match the money game. But we look like we should be ready um, on schedule or even a little bit ahead of schedule for a happy opening in early April. Awesome. And uh, are there, is there going to be a special event to kick that off to celebrate the opening, uh, maybe thank the sponsors? What's What does that look like? And then we'll certainly, we can get people the information on how they can visit once we've talked about it. But is there something to really, you know, set this in motion, uh, a big hurrah at the beginning? Um, that's a great question. You know, normally when galleries open, there is a big hurrah. Because of the pandemic and the restrictions that the Smithsonian um, has been operating under for the better part of the last two years, we decided that, um, you know, April 8th, which is our gallery opening date, was still a little bit soon for us to hold a gathering. So we've decided to postpone that to June and coordinate it with the time of the Baltimore Coin Show. So we will have a celebration of the gallery, but the big moment on April 8th will just be opening the doors and watching the kids come in um, and getting to see their reactions. And then we will absolutely be celebrating with our donors and supporters and friends of the NNC uh, in June. How much work is involved in the physical side of taking and transforming a space into an exhibit like Really Big Money? Uh, now how much work is, how many days did it take? How many man hours did it take? That type of thing. Those are great questions. You know, for someone who has been working on this for over four years or about four years, it feels like it's been part of my everyday life. So it's hard to quantify um, from a curatorial standpoint or a collection standpoint. But I can say from a physical standpoint in terms of transforming the space from the old stories on money space to the new really big money space with the cases being built and changed and the painting and the lighting and the object installation, you know, it's a solid few months of work for a pretty significant team. Not just the team I work with in numismatics and and the, my you know my collections colleagues, but also you know our fabrication department. They built the cases, they paint the walls. Our mount maker has done the Herculean task of creating these incredible mounts for you know a yard, large stone ray, uh, 165 Roman coins, and mounting them in the shape of a head. You know the important work of thinking about how to safely mount our beautiful Quetzal bird so that his long tail feathers hang in a way that um, doesn't put stress on on him. So we are a huge team in that sense, and everybody has put in lots of time, but has really heavily worked on it over the last few months. And also uh, putting up a uh, a knife blade so that somebody can measure themselves against it without getting cut. <laughs> yeah, that one was a particularly. Um, intense moment during our installation a couple weeks ago of all the objects in the room you know that one is not the heaviest um, by any stretch but <laughs> it is the most fragile it has this incredibly fragile portion of the blade you know it's made of iron and there's a part of it that's just very deteriorated so when we took this to conservation they flagged that for us they let us know that we could use it we could put it in the gallery but that we would need to be very cautious about how we lifted it and how we mounted it and the case that it would sit in so that if it was knocked it wouldn't be damaged so when it came time for us to actually lift that five foot seven congolese blade off the table and and stand it up and mount it into the case we had five people including a conservator overseeing that. We talked at length about how we were going to lift it and how it was going to um, be, you know, be mounted, how long it would take. And I could not be more proud of the team and more grateful for all the care everyone showed in that process. And it looks so magnificent now, standing up proudly in the gallery. And there's a little step, you know, step that children can stand on so that they can be level with the blade and then they can measure themselves against it. And what's so wonderful about that is that it gives young visitors a chance to interact with this really big money. Instead of just teaching them things, it gives them a chance to learn through play and learn through experience. And we know that that's one of the best ways for young visitors, especially children in the third to fifth grade range to really learn and to have memorable learning experiences. So that blade, I'm so glad you mentioned it. It's, 
it's one of my favorite objects in the room. And it um, was a huge challenge, but I think it's also going to have a huge payoff. It's interesting uh, that the objects, of course, are the center of the attention here. But as the exhibit continues to open up and grow, how much human interaction is there going to be? In other words, are there going to be volunteers as part of this exhibit that can answer questions right there that the uh, obviously curious uh, visitors are going to have? That's such a great question. In fact, just last week, I gave a talk to the museum's volunteer volunteers and docents um, to catch them up, to share with them all the exciting things that we're going to have in the new gallery, and to make sure that they had all the information they needed to convey it to visitors. And what they shared with me, and I'm so, so proud of this, is that the education cart at the value of money, our numismatics discovery cart, is the most popular in the building and our visitors stay for longer periods with it. So they started to clamor for a really big money cart, not to take away the the numismatics cart from the value of money, but to have a second cart that they could staff right outside our new gallery for kids. And I desperately want to make this a a reality. So we don't currently have a cart programmed. We don't currently have a, a volunteer dedicated to the space, but it is one of my big goals over the next year to find the funds that we need and to gain the support in order to program a really big money cart so that we can have that kind of volunteer visitor interaction and further enrich the really big money experience for young visitors. What kind of objects might be on the cart and what kind of expense are you thinking it might take to get that? So the objects could vary a lot. Of course, we're not going to have objects from the vault from our collection because we can't handle those, can't have visitors handle those. But there are a lot of objects that we could acquire um, not as part of the collection, like hyperinflation notes from Zimbabwe, hyperinflation notes from Venezuela, potentially some replicas of ancient coins so kids can have a a more kind of close-up tactile experience um, with the objects in the gallery. Certainly things like feathers um, to, to go you know, along with the Quetzalbird tail feathers uh, and have kids have all of those sort of sensory experiences that we know help them learn. And then there are other, you know, kind of basic math uh, skill sets that we could use money to help teach through visitors. And we really want this gallery to be a place where children build knowledge of the world around them, but also improve financial literacy. So math and financial literacy go hand in hand. And that could be a place where we could start to exercise those skills for kids in a way that is, you know, would go beyond the gallery. As far as the cost, I, I, I will wait and sort of defer to the development office <laughs> at the American History Museum to put an actual number on that. But I will say that it's not an insurmountable number, and it is one that is on par with donations um, and gifts that we've received in the past. So it is something that I'd love to see us do. Of course, our development office leads that fundraising effort. But I think that we could do amazing things with it, and, it, and the numismatics discovery card and the value of money is the proof that when we bring visitors, you know, in contact with volunteers and with numismatic objects, really magical things happen. And one of the lessons learned about money, obviously, in all of these displays is how it can be used and used in a proper way. And I think there are a lot of heroes that go together to make a lot of these displays. But one of the heroes you uh, we haven't really talked about and need to talk about them because they deserve a lot of recognition is the fact that a lot of these uh, activities are created through the gracious donations of individuals and corporations and uh, the hard work of the volunteers you've already mentioned. But I think we need to uh, single out those who were responsible for really big money because they're the ones who uh, have made a big, big contribution to make this happen. Absolutely. I would love the opportunity to talk a little bit about the amazing support that we have from the numismatic community. The friends of the NNC have absolutely transformed the National Numismatic Collection, and a number of individuals have even gone further and and stood out in terms of their ability and willingness to support these kinds of projects. This project, Really Big Money, would not have been possible without the support of the Howard F. Bowker family, Michael Chu, Bill and Diane Calderazzo, and also with support from Jeff Garrett, Bob Harwell, and John McMullen. I want to say a very heartfelt thanks to them for being willing to invest in building the next generation of numismatists and making these objects from the National Numismatic Collection do more work, smarter work, and be real educational resources for children and teachers. It is a huge privilege to get to work with this material, but I would not have the chance, we would not have the chance to give this op- these objects 
all of this amazing opportunity to do this good work without the support from these donors. So a huge heartfelt thanks to them. Now that we are closer and closer to the actual uh, reality of the really big money, the word is getting out there. I've seen some great articles in places like the Numismatist and hearing about it. How has the educational community uh, been gearing up for the opportunity to uh, have their students learn more about this? That's a great question. You know, we are still in the early stages of raising awareness amongst educators about this show and about the digital resources that we're providing so that even, you know, schools who can't bring their students to the museum can have really big money uh, as part of their curriculum in the classroom. I can say that we have already had contact with educators from some of the local schools who are interested in building entire learning modules around really big money as part of their social studies curriculum or their math curriculum. That is exactly what we hoped would happen. You know, our online presence through the learning lab We have these learning lab resources that are sort of packaged modules for educators so that they don't have to imagine or come up with how to make this work with their curriculum, but it already should hopefully work with the curriculum that they would be teaching their students. So we have an education department at the museum that will, um, starting in April, begin pushing out announcements about really big money and our digital resources to educators around the country. And as school groups return to the museum, we will be raising awareness through our docents and through our education department about this show and about how it is really designed for elementary aged learners. So we're still in the early stages, but we're getting tons of interest. Um, When people do hear about it, they tend to light up, which is what we hoped would happen. And this is, of course, not just a short term thing. This gallery will be here for at least five years. So we will have an ongoing, sustained effort to engage educators and young visitors with this content and to make it as useful to them as possible. So one of the things that, you know, as we've gone on this journey talking about this, highlighting this, um, this was an idea that was inspired by your daughter. Now that the exhibit is, you know, on the cusp of debuting, I wonder if uh, you've had a chance to bring her to it and see her reaction. And, you know, she was sort of the inspiration for this. How has she experienced it or interpreted it if if uh, that's happened yet? Absolutely. She is the inspiration. Um, as I've shared with you guys, I first came up with this uh, when she was 10 months old and I was up in the middle of the night with her. And, um, you know, she's been a part of it every step of the way, especially these last couple of years Uh, that we've been home through the pandemic. She has sometimes sat in on meetings. I've sometimes asked her opinion um, as I'm, you know, thinking through decisions about the gallery. And uh, just this week, we built the gallery out of magnet tiles and Legos and put a pretend Quetzal bird and put a pretend, um, you know, Roman coin. So she really knows this gallery. And I am going to have the privilege of actually showing it to her this Thursday. And I cannot wait. And I would think that that's the joy that can be found both as an educator because parents play the role of educators as well. And actually, that's where the education starts is at the home. So a lot of times it may not be a case in moving forward in the future. It's going to be the parents who take on the role of the teachers here. So uh, certainly the Learning Lab um, assets that you mentioned, those are available for parents as well, aren't they? Absolutely. Learning Lab is free and available to everybody. And I absolutely agree with with what you said, which is that parents are also teachers. Parents are also educators. I have enormous respect for for professional educators, of course, but I know that parents are partners in that, you know, in teaching our children and reinforcing what they learn in school and also taking them beyond school curriculum. And one of the things that I have felt as a mother is that it's much easier to teach my daughter when she is naturally drawn to something than to to force something that she's not excited about. So what I love about really big money is that these objects are naturally eye-catching. They are, they make you wonder. They, they make you want to know more just by looking at them. And that's the hook. That's the in. And then there's a way to learn through these objects about these key concepts that all children need to know about money and economics and world cultures. So as a parent myself, I know that the job of teaching is easier when things are fun and exciting. And I think this gallery hopefully will be a resource to parents as well as teachers for ways for children, you know, ways to teach children these things that that we know are important to help give them the tools to to become, you know, members of society. 
And I think there's another thing to be considered here. Don't uh, get caught up in the fact that it's at the Museum of American History because it involves a lot of the world. I can see where uh, when times get better, this is going to be an attraction that transcends the U.S. borders. Is that a fair statement? I hope so. I absolutely love the fact that the National Numismatic Collection is not only the collection of record for the U.S., but also is this wonderful global collection. You know, we have objects that represent every inhabited continent. They span more than 3,000 years of human history. And this gallery, even though it is small, and even though we, you know, it's not a huge number of objects, it really reflects that geographic and chronological diversity of the National Numismatic Collection. And as with the value of money, which is also incredibly diverse and represents you know, the globe and represents thousands of years of history, what I always say is that to understand American history and particularly to understand money in America, it's best to look at it in, the, in a global context and to connect what we do in America and what we see in America to these longer, bigger histories that we're all a part of. And money is this amazing unifier because it is something that every community around the world has had to make a decision about. Everyone's needed some medium of exchange and everyone around the world has come up with their own ways of doing things or they've adapted them from somewhere else, made them their own. But this is a shared part of, of human history, a shared part of the world. And so really big money gives children a chance to think about these key concepts that are universal but then to take a little bit deeper of a dive, too, into these other cultures and places, you know, Mexico and Guatemala, in the case of the Quetzal bird, ancient Rome, in the case of the Roman coins, the island of Yap, in the case of the ray stone. And these places may not be initially familiar to young learners, but these objects will be a memorable way for them to have their first encounter with these, these places and people that hopefully will remain on their minds and part of their perspective about what the world around them is really like. Yeah, this is something I think that will really plant a lot of seeds, you know, especially once there's more uh, in-person visits. But uh, even, you know, having the access to the digital tools, this is really, you know, you have the chance to be a sort of uh, numismatic Johnny Appleseed here and, yes. and getting people interested and excited about these, the, the hobby at a like you say, a global level. And, um, you know, how can somebody, you know, if they get that interest, how do you, how do we bring them down to the, you know, a smaller level though, so that, you know, keep them further involved and get them, you know, the, what's the next step, I guess, uh, if for somebody who's interested in the topic, they get that little appetizer and, you know, they see the exhibit. How do we get them to the next step though? What is that? That's a fantastic question. So I think not only us at the Smithsonian, but also the ANA um, have created a lot of resources for children or like young collectors to help them explore that interest. So whether they um, you know, are a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout and might then pursue a badge, or whether they want to explore some of the online resources um, for learning about currency around the world, or they want to get into collecting you know, through the U.S. Mint's pathways for children, there are a lot of options. And on our um, National Numismatic Collection webpage, we have an education page that has tons of links to help parents and, and young learners take that interest further, go to the next step, and to find the way to, that they want to go forward. Um, because as you said, there's a seed. And then for each child, for each young collector, there might be a different pathway. Um, so we've put together as many of those resources as we can on our education page to help families, help children take that next step if they wish to. So now let's, uh, I'm going to turn you into a virtual tour guide here because <laughs> for those who may have been fortunate enough to come visit the value of money before uh, conditions, ever the optimist that I am for someone who wants to make a return visit to the museum and they know the location of the value of money, where is really big money going to be in relation to that existing exhibit? Absolutely. It is on the same floor of the National Museum of American History, which is our first floor. If you enter through Constitution Avenue, if you were to take a right and go into our West Wing, you would see that glorious fall door that welcomes visitors into the value of money. But if you were instead to take a left and go a little bit past this new beautiful Molina Gallery, you will find really big money. You will probably be able to spot it from that center of, of the Constitution Ave entrance. As you approach it, you will see into the room, you will see the Quetzalbird's tail feathers, 
iridescent green beckoning <laughs> visitors in, you will see um, our large coin head with 165 coins, you know, in the shape of Diocletian. Um, you will see a big uh, Swedish plate and uh, the large stone ray as well. So you can spot all of that from the hallway, which is very exciting. And the room is bright and cheerful, and you can tell that it's for children. It's not kiddie in the design, but it is a sort of take on primary colors, and it's bright, and it's, it's I think, apparent from the outside that this is a space that hopefully kids will love. And it's kind of tough attracting because there's so many things to see in that museum as it is. So from just re- from my recollection of it here, and again, I'm being the optimist here, uh, What are, the hours are restricted, currently restricted as we uh, make this presentation here on March 22nd. There are restricted hours uh, still in effect. Is that correct? That is true, but that will end April 4th. So as oh, of April 4th, we will return to a full schedule, um, open seven days a week, and Really Big Money will be open all of that time, as will the value of money. This gallery, Really Big Money, actually opens after that on April 8th. So when we open, this gallery will be available full time, seven days a week. So you talk about good timing. That yes. is great timing. Right yes, there. I couldn't be more thrilled um, because a lot of families come in the spring, um, student groups come in the spring, and you know we want to give them maximum access. So I, I'm delighted. Well, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, the, the physical visit there, but I mean, some may want to prepare themselves for that physical visit, kind of hype up the excitement of like, uh, when, when you go to an amusement park, you look at their website and see what you're going to be seeing here. What are some of the uh, digital ways that people can uh, get information prior to their actual physical visit. Absolutely. You can find our really big money landing page one of two ways. You can either go to the National Numismatic Collection website and click on exhibitions, or you can go to the American History website, which is americanhistory.si.edu. And um, under exhibits, alphabetically, you'll find really big money. And on that landing page, we currently have the Match the Money online interactive game, which is um, available in English and Spanish and is an opportunity to play a matching game with clues and objects from the gallery. And when you make all the matches, you not only learn additional fun facts about these objects, but you see a Quetzalbird, an animated Quetzalbird, go on this magnificent journey around the world through banknotes that come to life. So you can access the game through that page. You can also access a video about Quetzalbirds and how their tail feathers were used as currency that's part of the museum's History Time series, again, geared toward young visitors and children. And then also four learning labs um, can be reached through that site, each of which is tailored to a different age group, kindergarten through second, third to fifth, and sixth to eighth, so that teachers and families can explore this and, and also go further beyond the content of the gallery at home or in the classroom. And I'm very pleased to report that in a couple weeks, coordinated with our opening of the gallery on April 8th, we will actually launch the Really Big Money online exhibition. So anyone around the world can visit this exhibition virtually and see all of the content that is in the gallery. This is very important to me and exciting because it took us quite a few years to get the Value of Money exhibition up. We opened it in 2015. We only got the exhibition up last year. I'm delighted that we did. But this time, we can give physical access and digital access to the exhibition at the same time. And I'm, I'm really pleased about that. Definitely do appreciate your time and the information that you've given us here today. It's always uh, You're always welcome here on our show. We appreciate you having us and uh, look forward to actually coming and visiting. I mean, I know Jeff said in our first broadcast that he uh, wanted to go there. And so I think maybe we can just... Uh, get our donors together and send Jeff to come see really big money. Uh, We would love to host both of you. We would absolutely love to host you and um, show you really big money and also the value of money. It's, as I've said, not only a privilege to work with this collection, but to have the chance to share it. So um, let me know when you want to come. All right. Let let me check the uh, Washington national schedule and see when they're playing, (laughs) when they're playing the Cardinals. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) You talk about an alternative there. Okay, well, that's fine. But uh, here again, thanks so much for your time. Congratulations on the progress that has been made. And we're looking forward to an exciting day coming up in April. And thank you for sharing it once again with our Coin World listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, isn't this exciting? I mean, you know, it's so nice to have 
something geared toward younger folks and help draw them into this wonderful hobby in this area. And, you know, the, the seeds are being planted. It may take years for the harvest, but that's okay. This is a, a long-term thing. So neat to hear about that. We're thankful for Dr. Feingold for taking the time again to share the details of that. And of course, we're thankful for CoinWorld Plus for allowing us to be here. And we're thankful to you for being here every week, well, week in, hear- week out. Yeah. And hearing that too makes me want to be a kid again, but all I can best I can do for that is just simply be childish. So, uh, and that, that happens quite a lot here, but again, thank you so much. For, I'll ask Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have, you can ask anybody who's come in contact with me, but, uh, want to thank everybody for being a part of this once again. And, uh, we invite your comments, make sure that you drop us a line here as, uh, we do hope that you get a chance to make a visit to, or check out the really big money that's happening at the uh, Smithsonian Institution right here. Time for us to wrap it up here once again, but uh, don't ever quit on your coin collection, on your collecting journey. So in the meantime, until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.